Well, good morning. On, uh, on mornings like this, it may be good uh, for us and humbling to remember that up until fairly recently, uh, when the weather was like this, uh, people came to churches like this and sat in weather like this, most of them dressed much more formally than we are. In fact, there are places in the world where people are accustomed to worshiping in weather like this for hours on end, dressed more formally than we are. But this is not one of those places, <clears throat> and we are not in one of those times, so this will be on the short side. Uh, I, I saw a number on the thermostat over there that I have not seen on that thermostat before on a Sunday morning, so uh, I thank all of you for coming out on this morning. We do This, this family meeting is going to be an important one afterwards, so I urge you to stay uh, for that. So as we were talking about the land a few weeks ago, a couple months actually at this point, a very, very good and very important question was raised. You may remember this. There was a, uh, a discussion about the Jubilee year. And anybody remember how often does the Jubilee year happen? Every 50 years. And what happens in the Jubilee year? What's that? No, well, debts are forgiven every seven years. But what happens in the Jubilee year that's special? Land. Land. <laughs> Interactive. This is good. Land reverts. And to whom does it revert? To the original family. No, the land does not revert to Jesus. Thank you, Joe. <clears throat> the land reverts to the family that originally owned it. Right? Uh, why does the land revert to the family that originally owned it? That's a good answer. <clears throat> For what reasons might that land revert to the family that originally owned it? Right. This is a, a means of, of uh, avoiding intergenerational poverty. Uh, so if parents did something stupid or lazy or just unlucky, uh, then uh, multiple generations would not be consigned to suffer the full results of that. If you uh, are impoverished on the day before the Jubilee... On the Jubilee, you once again have a share in the family farm, so to speak. What happens if you're wealthy on the day before the Jubilee? What, what, what are you going to be like on the day of Jubilee? Joyful that you get to provide, maybe not so happy, but you also probably are still going to be wealthy because wealthy, there, there are other means of wealth that don't get redistributed, right? So if you've got a lot of crops, you've got a lot of livestock, monetized commodities, debt held by non-Israelites, those don't get forgiven every seven years. Uh, there are ways that you can retain wealth that uh, will survive the Jubilee. Jubilee only has to do with reverting land back to the original family of ownership, right? Uh, so why, again, why, why was this happening? Well, God said, I'm going to bring you people out of slavery in Egypt. I'm going to bring you to a land. I'm going to give you everything you need to live there, to live there well. I'm going to give you safety. I'm going to give you security from your enemies. I'm going to give you my Torah that's going to teach you how to live in a way that honors me, in a way that keeps you healthy and prosperous. And I'm going to give you all of the land you need to make this work. Land, of course, being the primary means of capital at the time. Primarily agricultural society. You need land to do things like grow crops, graze animals, and uh, the like. So 
God's giving all this land, and he apportions the land to different clans. We get in chapter 26, a part that Elliot didn't talk about, talk about last week, uh, in, in verse 52, Yahweh says to Moses, the land is to be allotted to the tribes uh, as, an Israel, as an inheritance based on the number of names, basically the number of clans. So to a larger group, give a larger inheritance. To a smaller group, a smaller one. Each is to receive its inheritance according to the number of those listed. And be sure the land is distributed by lot. So we don't want anybody uh, sneaking into the zoning office and making special deals. What each group inherits will be according to the names for its ancestral tribe. Each inheritance is to be distributed by lot among the larger and smaller groups. And later on in Joshua, if you have a hankering for geography, you can see exactly the turf that each tribe gets. And then within that land, then different clans got different portions of the land. Right? Good? Okay. And so what happens when um, somebody dies? Right? Besides the fact that you have to deal with the body. What happens to that person's assets? They get passed on, right? They get passed on specifically, in the case of land, to whom? To the sons, right? In the case of land, they get passed on to the sons. Which spurred the very good question that was asked, what happens if a person dies without any sons? And the answer, yes, is Zelophehad's daughters. Here we are in Numbers chapter 27. We have this very situation come up. The daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, they belong to the clans of the Manassas, of Manasseh, son of Joseph. Remember, Joseph uh, produced two clans, Ephraim and uh, two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, because he was so special. And the Levites didn't get apportioned land because they had the specific responsibility for managing worship. Names of the daughters were Machla, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. And they came forward, stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, the leaders, and the whole assembly at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So this is a very formal presentation of a legal claim, or basically a question raised before the, the court, so to speak. They said, our father died in the wilderness. He was not among Korach's followers who banded together against Yahweh, but he died for his own sin. And he left no sons. Presumably, if he had been part of Korach's rebellion, one of those people swallowed up in the earth, swallowed up with him, would have been whatever land would have been due him. That would have been redistributed. But he was not one of those. He just died, like all these other people died in the desert, for their own sin. But he left no sons, just us girls. So why should our father's name disappear from his clan because he had no son? Give us property among our father's relatives. And, of course, name there stands in for what? Not a name. It stands in for a property claim, right? We want to have our share as well. Now, you may think, well, what's the big deal? Well, if you look ahead in Joshua, basically it turns out that there are ten tracts for this particular part of Manasseh, and uh, there are going to be nine of the, it's going to be divvied up nine ways if you don't count Zelophehad's daughters, if that gets redistributed. It's going to be ten ways if they do. You might think, nine, ten, what's the big deal? Let's say that's worth $900 million, right? You divvy that up nine ways, then each is worth how much? $100 million. No. Not in current real estate market. It, you divvy up nine ways, each is worth $100 million. You divvy up ten ways, each is worth $90 million. 
difference in the value of each tract of $10 million. That is not chump change. So, <clears throat> evidently, the uh, relatives of Zalofa had probably what spurred this is that they assumed that since Zalofa had died without any sons, that uh, what was going to be his property would be distributed among them. So they came forward and said, come on, that's ridiculous. We should get property among our father's relatives, just like they do. And so Moses brought their case before Yahweh. Yahweh said to him, what Zelophehad's daughters are saying is right. You must certainly give them property as an inheritance among their father's relatives and give their father's inheritance to them. So say to the Israelites, if a man dies and leaves no son, give his inheritance to his daughter. And if he has no daughter, give his inheritance to his brothers. No brothers, give his inheritance to his uncles. If no uncles, give his inheritance to the nearest relative in his clan that he may possess it. And this is to have the force of law for the Israelites, just as Yahweh commanded Moses, right? So question about the law, technical issue, raised, settled, no problem, right? Not necessarily. Evidently, there were some lawyers in the clans of Manasseh. Because when we move ahead to chapter 36, the very end of Numbers, the majestic conclusion to this book of the Bible, here we have again an issue dealing with land, inheritance rights, and Zelophehad's daughters. The family heads of the clan of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, who were from the clans of the descendants of Joseph, came and spoke before Moses and the leaders, the heads of the Israelite families. They said, So when Yahweh commanded my Lord to give the land as an inheritance to the Israelites by lot, he ordered you to give the inheritance of our brother Zelophehad to his daughters. Now, here's the problem. What if they meet a nice Ephraimite boy? What's going to happen to the land after they die? Who gets it? Their husband would. Or their sons, the Ephraimite sons. If you have intermarriage among tribes, right, and if the land is inherited, then you're very quickly going to have the tribal maps look like a patchwork with different people from other tribes holding land in uh, different tribal lands. And so when the Jubilee comes every 50 years, it's not all going to revert back to the home tribe. Some of that is now going to be possessed by somebody else because what reverts back is something that is bought or sold uh, or leased. What reverts back is that, not something that's inherited. Obviously, think about that just for a second. You can't, if you inherit something, you can't give it back to the original owner because after 50 years, he's probably dead. Right? So inherited land doesn't get, doesn't revert. And incidentally, the Jubilee only has to do with land. Other property can be passed on, inherited in, in any way. But there's, here's a potential problem. We don't want their inheritance to be taken from our ancestral inheritance. We don't want those Ephraimite guys getting land in Manasseh and added to that to the tribe that they marry to. So part of that inheritance allotted to us would be taken away. When the year of Jubilee for the Israelites come, their inheritance will be added to that of the tribe into which they marry. Their property will be taken from the tribal inheritance of our ancestors. And we don't like that idea. And then at the Yahweh's command, Moses said, he gave this order to the Israelites, what the tribe of the descendants of Joseph is saying is also right. So this is what Yahweh commands for Zelophehad's daughters. They may marry anyone they please as long as they marry within their father's tribal clan. 
No inheritance in Israel is to pass from one tribe to another. For each of the Israelites shall keep the tribal inheritance of their ancestors. Every daughter who inherits land in any Israelite tribe must marry someone in her father's tribal clan so that all Israelites will possess the inheritance of their ancestors. It's not a regulation that applies to any other woman, only if she is inherited property because she didn't have any brothers. No inheritance may pass from one tribe to another, for each Israelite tribe is to keep the land it inherits. So Zelophehad's daughters did as Yahweh commanded Moses. Zelophehad's daughters, Machla, Tirzah, Hogla, Milcah, and Noah, married their cousins on their father's side. Now, you may know that uh, there was one tribe that had uh, that was so numerous, they actually got two possessions. There was an eastern and a western uh, tribal allotment for Manasseh. And uh, guess which of those Zelophehad's daughters are in? No, they're, no, they were in west Manasseh. Evidently, Manasseh is Hebrew for Virginia. Uh, I think we have actually a picture from one of the um, one of the weddings. Um, just give, give it a second to look at that. Yeah. So, to the sound of banjos, they marry their cousins, married within the clans of the descendants of Manasseh, son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in their father's tribe and clan. Three observations I wish to make. Number one, Torah is eminently practical. If we have seen this once, we've seen a thousand times. We have all sorts of guarantees of, of uh, ways that material assets are protected and ways that they are restricted. And they are protected and restricted in ways that do not imagine everybody is a wonderfully generous person like, say, all of you. I believe it was Madison who said that if men were angels, there would be no need of government. And even in a theocracy like that of ancient Israel, God knew that his people were not angels, that there needed to be laws to protect, say, some women whose father died without leaving his sons, and whose uncles were trying to take his stuff. So Torah is eminently practical. The second is that there is a tension that we find throughout Torah between individual rights and the rights of the family, the rights of a tribe, the rights of a nation. And those tensions don't always resolve the way that we might like them to. They certainly don't resolve the way we might expect them to. We live in a society based, and, and uh, actually uh, Captain Jack over there, uh, Rich, would be happy to get up and, and expound upon the uh, political philosophies of the early founders and the need to understand individual rights and contract theory and all that. But the, the shorthand version is that we all have been... Uh, taught growing up that we're part of a society, part of a nation of individuals who collectively uh, have our rights as individuals secured by a government. We give away some of those rights to the government in order to make sure that they all get protected. 
But this is not the paradigm that we find in Scripture. Certainly, human beings are made in the image of God. They have inherent dignity. There are all sorts of protections of individual rights. But there are places where the needs of the community and especially the needs of the family override individual rights. This is a prime example of that. What seems to be very important here is that the land be uh, kept within a particular tribe, right? That's going to seem like a violation of your rights if you bought that land off of somebody and now next year's the Jubilee year and you're going to have to give it back. Obviously, if you've got any sense, you have made the transaction with that in mind. And again, Torah being eminently practical, it says, really, you're not buying it. You're just leasing it. You have a, a lease to the land and you know how long it's going to be. And you have to work out the numbers, and, and I don't want anybody taking advantage of anybody else. And as we talked about, that's actually a command to the poor. Don't take advantage of the rich by taking out a loan that you know you're not going to pay back. But uh, there, it seems to be very important that this land allotted to a certain tribe stay within that tribe, that land allotted to a clan, if possible, stay within that clan. There is a, a sense of, of uh, an interest in stability, an interest in God's people putting down deep roots in this land and tying themselves to it that is, again, counter probably to the way many of us think. Many of us are here in Baltimore. Some of us are here because our families came from here. Others are here because at some point somebody in, in our family decided to move to Baltimore from someplace else because they were looking for work or for opportunity or running from creditors or some combination of the above. I found out my great-great-great-grandfather, George Washington Young, owned a grocery store in Baltimore, and then his descendants went out to Ohio and West Virginia. There you go. And then my parents went to Connecticut, and then I ended up here. But there's a sense here in, in Torah that God wants his people to, to take the land and to possess it, to root themselves deeply in it. And the reason for that, and this is my third observation, which is really more of a reminder, this land, after all, belongs to whom? Belongs to God. This land is God's. His people are temporary stewards of it. And the way that God commands his people to recognize the Jubilee year, even though we know historically there's really good evidence that it never was followed, but the, the idea of having to give back the land every 50 years is a reminder that it's not yours after all, that really this is God's land, they, that the people are God's people, that they are part of something much bigger than themselves. God in his wisdom said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to establish you in a land. I'm going to enable you to live well within that land. I am going to make it possible for you to thrive. I'm going to give you everything you need, and I can do that because it's my land and you're my people. The bad news, as we know, if we've read ahead, is that even with all of these advantages, even with all the protection God was willing to offer, even with the good law that he gave, even with the protections of rights and interests that he embedded in Torah, it did not end up working so well. The threat that God gave was, if you do not follow my Torah, then the land, this good land I'm giving you, is going to vomit you out. And eventually, as we know, it did. 
And so the sobering part of this is to realize that for all of these advantages, God's people still managed to squander them. For all of the help he was willing to provide, they nevertheless managed to screw it up. The good news of the cross is that nevertheless, God doesn't stop chasing after us. Nevertheless, he is willing to sacrifice himself for us, for our sake. And as we prepare to take communion, it would be good for us to think of ourselves just for a moment as an ancient Israelite. Maybe we would have been one of Zelophehad's daughters, making sure we protected the interests of our clan. Maybe we would have been one of those wicked uncles trying to steal that. Maybe we would have been a jurist hanging out with Moses and Eleazar, trying to figure out the proper adjudication of this question. Maybe we would have been watching with interest. But either way, we would have been part of a community that failed. And thanks be to God that our failures are not enough to prevent His grace. Indeed, it's our failures that make it necessary for him to extend it to us. So I'll invite you to stand up. We'll share together in the Nicene Creed, and then we'll take communion. I invite you to come and receive the elements and then bring them back to your seat, and then we'll take of them together. The red is wine, the white is grape juice, the bread is unleavened. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.